tonight is Wednesday. It's June 26, 2013. And uh, our message tonight is, can God count? I mean, seems like a reasonable question. Maybe not such a reasonable question. I don't know. Things occur to me that don't occur to everybody else. When we're talking about can God count, maybe a couple things we could do is review some of the amazing mathematics in the Bible. So while the rest of you sleep, Alex and I will have this conversation. we got at least one accountant in the group. What you see on the screen behind you is called Geomatra. Now, I don't intend to go through all of the Geomatra in the Bible. Those are two lists. I'll put them online for you later. You can download them. And what you see is you see uh, Alf, Beth, Gamal, uh, Dalla. These are Hebrew letters. And these Hebrew letters all have a numerical value. Alf is one. And uh, as we move down, Beth is two. And so on and so forth. On the other side, you see a list. Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta, Epsilon. Those are not just where all the ladies were on the campus back in the day. These are the Greek letters of the alphabet. And they also have numerical values. And because they have numerical values, every word in the Bible has a numerical value. And it so happens that Lord Jesus Christ has a numerical value of 3,168. Now that might not mean anything to you if your world doesn't revolve around numbers. And mine doesn't revolve around numbers, it revolves around words. So, yes ma'am, your hand is up. That, that comes from Greek. Okay, 3168 in Greek. And when you begin looking at the way God put together the world with numbers, it speaks a meaning. In this next slide, what happens is, have you ever stood back and looked at something and you kind of made the picture frame with your hands? If you could stand back, say, on the moon and make a picture frame with your hands that encompassed the world, the perimeter of the world, a box drawn around the world, that perimeter would be 31,860 miles. I'm sorry, 680 miles. That is the number of Jesus' name to a power of 10. It's as if there's a box around the world that says, Lord Jesus Christ. If you look at the atmosphere, the atmosphere, the top of the atmosphere is 50 miles. The crust of the earth is about 10. That's a total of 60 miles. That is also, when you multiply it out in feet, uh, 31, uh, 680 times 10 to the such and such power. It's as if across our world, starting with the crust and moving to the atmosphere, God wrote Lord Jesus Christ. Then when you look at the distance between the sun and the earth, some 93 million miles, when you drop off those zeros, turn them into feet and feet into inches, you know what? If you were to travel that by the speed of light, it's divisible by 3,168. It's almost as if God is trying to write his name, not just across the earth and the atmosphere, but also the whole distance across the solar system. It gets even better. Let us keep going. If you took the moon and the earth and you buddied them up next together like Dustin and I, and drew a circle around it, that circle would have a perimeter of 31,680 miles. Are you beginning to get the repetition here? Yes. Let me ask you, can God count? Yes. So we take the distance of some 36 million miles, 67 million miles, 93 million miles, so on and so forth, between the sun and Mercury, the sun and Venus, the sun and Earth, and all 
nine planets, and when you divide that by pi to get a uh, circum uh, diameter, we end up with 31,068 times 10 to such and such power. Where was Jesus born? Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which happens to have a latitude of 31.68 degrees north. <coughs> Does God like numbers? Yes. You can't make this stuff up, friends. This is a summary from a lady named Bonnie Gaunt. The book is in the library, unless somebody stole it, because uh, that happens occasionally. I know it's none of you. Pat says she has it. She didn't steal it. She checked it out. We'll check with Suzanne Hall and see who's telling the truth there. <laughs> in that book, she goes through the way flowers are put together. She talks about molecules. You know? And what we see is in every area of the uh, creation, God dwells in numbers. There's a phenomenon in the scripture called equidistant letter spacing. Some people call it ELS. That's just an abbreviation. And what this does for you, can you see up there the Hebrew script in the middle of the screen? Yes. That is the word Israel. And if you started in Genesis and Bereshit, and you started with the very first letter, and you began to skip every seven letters, there's a repeating pattern in a passage. The passage is called the Kaddish. This is actually not in Genesis 1.1. It begins in Genesis 1.30. And it's a blessing the Jews pray every day. And if you skip every seven letters, the first letter you'll come to is I. The uh, letter after skipping seven is S. The letter after skipping seven more goes on to spell Israel. Now, as neat as that is, this phenomenon gets even more complex. It's all over the Bible. And you can see this in the next slide. The word Torah. If you take a 50-letter skip in the book of Genesis, in other words, look for T, go 49 more letters, you will find an O, 49 more, you find an R, then an A, then an H. That in itself is amazing. You find that in the book of Genesis. What is more amazing, though, is that you also find it in the book of Exodus at the same letter skip. You also find it in the book of Numbers. And you also find it in the book of Deuteronomy. Anybody here think that that could happen by random chance? To, to find five books that have different subject matter that are written in a way that are plausible, that make sense, that cover subject matter, and yet there are words encoded behind the words. And what is that word? Torah. What was the other word? Israel. Well, it gets even neater than that. The further you go into this, you find all kinds of things. Somebody, well, my Bible's up there, and I told you I'd be out here. Can I borrow your Bible? In Deuteronomy 10, what translation is this, Dustin? I'll back then, then they'll understand it the first time. We don't have to retranslate. When we're looking at Deuteronomy 10, you can turn with me. I mean, we're out here doing this together, right? So in Deuteronomy 10, starting in uh, verse 17, something that we see. You at least got big print that I can read, Dustin. That's awesome. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. And you are to love those who are aliens, for you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. 
Hold fast him. Come on, say that. Hold fast to him. Oh, say it better than that. Hold fast to him. And take your oaths in his name. He is your praise. He is your God who per performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. Your forefathers who went down into Egypt were 70 and all. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in the sky. Now on the surface, that's a beautiful scripture, isn't it? Speaks of where you've come from, where you're going, what God's done for you. And what was right in the middle of it? What was that phrase you repeated? Hold fast to him. What you're looking at on the screen is a block of Hebrew text that is the same Hebrew text that we just read transliterated into English. If you skip 22 letters, every 22 letters, we see the word Hitler spelled out there. In the middle of a passage where God says, you're special to me, you'll always be special to me, but I need you to hold fast to me no matter what, the word Hitler is spelled out in the center of the passage. Do you know what else is spelled out there? Nazi and Holocaust. All in those five verses. What are the odds? Did the sentence make sense to you in English? And yet it's not like reading a crossword puzzle. When we look at this passage, it has meaning to us immediately. And the deeper you look on any level, there will be more and more meaning. Does God love numbers? Yes, I would say so. How about Yeshua in the equidistant letter spaces? Anybody familiar with Psalm 22? It's right before that one that everybody quotes and hangs on their wall. It has to do with a suffering servant. It has to do with many of the things Jesus said while he was on the cross. The word Yeshua appears at a skip of 50 letters in that song. The word King at 8 letters, Branch, Jesse, Messiah, and Salvation. All within the one song. Not only are there repeating patterns in the Bible, they have meaning both beneath the text and above the text. Somebody say that's great. That's great. People have been studying this forever. Does God love numbers? Yes, he loves numbers to the point that the greatest mathematicians the world has ever known, men like Isaac Newton, were fascinated with the Bible. They were fascinated with it because they recognized that God could count. Now, many of you have been in my home on Monday nights and one of the things that we noticed in the book of Revelation, we noticed in the book of Revelation something called heptatic structures. Am I making that up or do y'all remember that? You remember it. So that was a fa fancy way to say seven. The Hebrew word for Israel, we told you, was spelled out in the beginning of Genesis by skipping every seven letters. You don't remember when God said, I am the Alpha and the Omega in the book of Revelation? It says it more than once. Let's go to the next slide. I'm going to show you Alpha and Omega and hepatic structures. Reminding you of some things that you see in Revelation. You can back up one. There you go. Hepatic structures in Revelation. I didn't realize how small that would be for you. You'll be able to download it. It's even small for me. Huh? There are seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, seven lampstands. How many spirits are there? How many stars are there? How many lamps before God? Something called title pairs we covered. When addressing all seven churches, Jesus gave himself a new name. When he addressed each one, how many of them were there? How many promises to the overcomer? How many horns on the beast? How many eyes? How many angels? How many thunders? How many thousands? How many heads? How many crowns? 
How many plagues in the book of Revelation? How many mountains did the city set on? And how many kings were there? In the last book of the Bible, it says seven, 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 seven. As many ways as it could say seven, it says seven. This might be because in the first book of the Bible, in the very first chapter, what we see is we see God breaking up the creation into how many segments? Seven. And he ordered those seven days. And after six days, on the seventh day, he said we would rest. And then as time goes forward, there was this guy named Moses who he gave us law to. And in the law, in Leviticus 23, how many feasts were given? Seven. Seven. And how many months did they take? Seven. seven. And in what month were all seven feasts complete? Seven. In the seventh. And then we find out that not only did we have a week that was made of seven, and we had feasts that took seven months and then they were complete. When those people who were led by Moses and later Joshua formed a nation and went to go take their inheritance, they came to a very first city. What was that city? Jericho. And how many days did they walk around Jericho? And on the seventh day, how many times did they walk around? And then how many men blew trumpets of ram's horns? Seven. And what happened? The walls fell. It's as if God was saying over and over and over after seven, my work will be complete. In Revelation, there are seven beatitudes. Blessed is he that read it and that hear and keep those things. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. There's seven of these scattered throughout the book of Revelation. We see this heptatic structure everywhere reminding us that God began a thing and God will complete a thing. Where this gets really neat is while we're familiar with seven in the book of Revelation, in the very first sentence, which is on your screen, in Hebrew, in all of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, what you see grouped there are seven Hebrew words. The first sentence in the Bible, a statement that stands alone in the ancient world, unparalleled in any other work. No other work claimed to be the work of the God who created the heavens and the earth, everything seen and unseen. Begins with a seven letter, or seven word, rather, sentence. Those seven words have 28 letters. In other words, it's divisible by seven. When you take the subjects, or rather the nouns, of the sentence, which are God, heaven, and earth, they have 14 letters, divisible by seven. A doctor named Ivan Panin found more than 30 hepatic structures, hear this, in the first verse of Genesis 1. When Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, I'm the beginning letter and I am the ending letter, he's quite literally saying, I've known the end from the beginning since I began. Isn't that an amazing, does God love numbers? My whole hope here is not to give a science lesson. What was the first question we started with? Can God count? Is there anybody here that would like to make the assertion that God cannot count? Probably not. The entire structure of the Bible seems to say yes. So what is one plus one, Aqua? Two. One plus one is two anywhere you go, isn't it? But we have God with some fuzzy math sometimes. We have a Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, yet one. We have five loaves and two fishes, and yet twelve basketfuls left over. You know, we have some fuzzy math in the Bible. So let's look at that. 
Somebody turn to Genesis 16, verse 3. Unless you can read it on the screen. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. Now how unusual is this verse? For a million reasons, this is a whole different planet from our culture, right? I mean, this is not something that any American woman you know would do, right? And yet it's in the Bible, isn't it? If she conceived and gave birth to a son, what was that son's name? Ishmael. Anybody dispute that? How about Genesis 21, verses 2 through 3? Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah had borne him. If we have Ishmael and we have Isaac, if we have one plus one, how many sons do we have? Two. That's the same no matter where you are on the globe, right? One son and one son is how many sons? Can God count? Well, Dustin says yes. The rest of you have already gone to sleep. I need to stand on the chair. What am I going to do? Let us roll forward one more slide here if we want. That one seems to be burning. So we all agree that God can count. And we can see that there were two sons there. And if there were two sons there and God could count, when God speaks about those sons, what should we hear? We should hear that there were two sons. Look at Genesis 22, verse 1. <coughs> Dustin's there. Where are the rest of you? Yeah. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, you replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. What's wrong with that sentence? Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. One plus one is... And yet God is speaking and he's either lying or we're having trouble counting. Does that make you uncomfortable to put God in that position? God is either lying or he's having trouble counting. Because it makes me squirm a little bit. I don't like to think of God that way. And yet if God says something, it's true. God is the definition of truth, period. Many people would look at this and go, the Bible has factual errors in it. I said, no, you just don't count as well as God. But if you hang in there, he'll teach you. Watch what we see in Galatians. We see a key to this kind of thought. Turn with me to Galatians 4. You'll be in the 22nd verse. Who has reason to believe in the character of God tonight? Wow, y'all are giving me sign language when you could speak. Did y'all lose? Uh, I do. Y'all lost the ability to speak? Sentient human beings out here. Who has a reason to trust in the character of God tonight? Anybody in here got testimonies of his goodness? Anybody in here actually love him? When we come to a contradiction in the Bible and we love him, when we 
know his character, but we see something that we cannot understand. It causes us to go, Lord, I know that there is an explanation here, and yet I don't understand it. So would you please reveal it to me? Because I love you. And your word says that you're a good father who wants to give good things to me. So could we ask God to reveal to us the answer to the question? What the skeptic does, it looks at it and goes, ha ha! I knew that you were always not who you said you were. And I knew that I would eventually catch you. Because in my heart, I'm bigger than you. And you don't really exist. So a contradiction is a chance to show a believer to be a believer. And a chance to show a skeptic to be a skeptic. But you know who's not scared of contradiction? God. God. Not even a little bit. He is the absolute ultimate. So Galatians 4.22 is a key to our understanding. It says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons. Sounds like an acknowledgement that there's two. One by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way. But his son by the free woman was born as a result of a promise. How were you born? Were you born into religious, religious ritual? Did somebody throw some water on you, shove a cracker in your mouth, and declare you a son of God? Or were you born in some kind of supernatural way based on a promise that came right out of God's character? Look at Galatians 4.28. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. We have one born of a promise, also born of the power of the Spirit of God. Friends, there is no other way to be born again than to believe in God's promises and His Spirit enter you so that you would be renewed and remade. It is the same now. But what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son. For the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Now, how can you have one plus one and end up with only one? God is able to subtract as well as he's able to add. The whole church world has forgotten this. They think that if God put you in his hand, there is no way out of the hand. They see the church as a Holy Ghost trap, a bear claw that has got you by the leg. And as bad as you want to go to hell, God just won't let you. And it is not true. It never has been true. There is only one kind of son that is reckoned unto the living God, and it's the one that's born of a promise. It is the one who is born of the power of the Spirit. And it's as many as are led by the Spirit of God, those are the sons of God. Now there is another message in this that is beautiful. And it really comes from our defining needs. When we think of people, we often remember them for all of the wrong reasons. But when we look at somebody like Enoch, what do we really know about Enoch? Well, most Bible scholars say Enoch walked with God and was no more. Is that fair? And every first year Bible student's going, what on earth does that mean? Right? Then you get a little further on, you see a guy named Elijah go up in a chariot. Then you get a little further along, you get to the last book, and you go, wow, there's two end time prophets. 
maybe God can count. And so he took two men who didn't die natural deaths, and they're going to come back in an end time with an amazing message. But what comes before that in Enoch's life? Look, nobody even knows. Isn't that interesting? If we get to the fifth chapter of Genesis in the 21st verse, you're going to find out that Enoch was 65 years old when Methuselah was born. And after that, he walked with God. Did God forget about the previous 65 years? What happens? If he walked with God starting in year 66, what about the previous 65 years? He could have done some pretty heinous things, my friends. It seems that God would rather remember what was born of his promise and born of the Spirit than you did in your flesh. It seems that the living God is willing to look past what you did in former years and credit you with what you're doing that is born of him. When we look at Noah, we said Noah built a boat and saved the human race, eight people in all. But we forget the very first act of the savior of the human race was to get so drunk and naked that some of his family got cursed because of it. I mean, there's drunk and there's drunk and naked. <laughs> and this is after he did those things. At least when we're talking about Enoch, we could say, well, you know, Enoch, he, he did his thing and then he had a, an experience with the living God and he just moved on. But what are we going to say about Noah? Noah saved the whole world and said, Lord, that was so tough. I got to make me some wine and got drunk. But is that how the Bible presents him as a whole? The Bible never denies the sin of the human beings, but it neither lets that sin define them. If they trust in the Lord, then they are born of the Spirit of God. They are children of the promise. And Noah goes down as a hero of the faith, not the drunken Savior of the human race. This, look, there's only given two people in here hope. Y'all not being real. I mean, do we need to go back through your Facebook pages? What we got to do? Whether Enoch or Noah, everybody's got a pass. How about Mr. Abraham? Abraham, the father of the faithful. Our children sing songs about him in Sunday school, right? Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. What about when Abraham told Abimelech, she's my sister? <laughs> he was scared somebody would hurt him, so he put his wife in another man's bed. Had it not been for God, we could have had some illegitimate children born. Not to mention, what about his poor wife? You know? Today I'm your wife, but if he's around because you're a coward, I'm suddenly your sister. How does he justify it? Besides, she is kind of my relative. Is, is that a godly thing? Anybody in here want to start the first church if she's my sister? <laughs> but that's not how the Bible remembers Abraham, is it? It remembers him as the father of the faithful. How about Isaac? In Genesis 26, 7, you know what he did? He did exactly what his daddy did. Come on, daddies. The son picked up the very same sin the father had. He saw his father cave, and so he caved in exactly the same way, in exactly the same setting. It's not a generational curse, it's generational stupidity. We need to get a clue. Then you got to love a man like Jacob. 
What would Jacob, the man who is the Prince Israel, the founder of the nation, do besides lie to his daddy, cheat his brother, and manipulate his mother? He did all of the above. But is that how we remember Jacob? Jacob is one of the more exalted figures in all of history. How does God identify himself? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not God of, she's my sister, she's my sister, and I lied to my mother and father and cheated my brother. But is he not the God of both, really? He did not allow the men who trusted him to be defined by their failures. He made sure they were defined by what was born of him. Anybody receiving some hope out of that? You're looking at somebody that has found many, many ways to fail. I'm good at it. Yeah, I can succeed at finding ways to fail. And yet those failures do not have to define me. They don't have to define you. If we continue to trust Him, God is willing to look past what you did wrong to birth something in you that was born of Him. Guys, that means it's never too late to turn around. That means it's never too late to become a success. How about Mr. Moses? You know? I mean, right now the whole world's talking about some NFL linebacker that threw a punch at a guy and now he's up for murder, right? Probably shouldn't have been in that strip club at 2 o'clock in the morning. Hang around yucky people, yucky things happen, right? But what about Mr. Moses? He realizes he has a calling. He's upset at the injustice that is happening to his people. And what does he do? He kills an Egyptian. It must have been righteous indignation. He must have thought he was doing the right thing. Probably not. You know why? He looked this way, and he looked that way, and he dug a hole, and he put the Egyptian in the hole, and he tried to hide it. Does it sound like Moses was clear conscience before God? And then after having hidden the body, when it became known, what did he do? He skipped town. I mean, his bail bondsman looked for him for 40 years. That's not how Moses is remembered. Moses is the great lawgiver that changed the face of the world. Rahab. If you prefer, since we have a Hebrew expert on the front row, Rahab, Jesus, Jesus, Georgia, y'all, Shalom, y'all. Look, none of us should presume to know that uh, we have any clue how to pronounce these words, but if we know it is Rahab, then Rahab, that's fine. Rahab, she is in the Hebrew's faith. All the fame. What? She lied. Is that how you're going to get there? She was trying with all of her heart to do something right for God, and even that was law. And by the way, what was Rahab's occupation? She's a prostitute, you know? She probably had seven and a half inch heels while she was lying. But she had a heart that was moldable by the living God. So he doesn't define her as the prostitute liar. He defines her as the one who risked her life to further her plan. Well, how about Mr. Gideon? Since we're going to name a baby after him, apparently one of the ladies is pregnant with a Gideon, we heard. Where was Gideon when the angel found him? Hiding. He's hiding in a threshing floor. Uh, actually, he's hiding in a wine press. It's not seasoned to make wine. Threshing wheat. Because nobody would look there. It's like hiding in a ski shop, a winter ski shop in the middle of the summer. 
Okay, they just don't go together. What's the first thing the angel tells him? Mighty warrior. Heaven will define you by a promise that you can be rather than what you are. Every one of these names came right out of Hebrews 11, the example of all examples for what it is to be a hero of the faith. We didn't get to Barak. Barak was such a pansy, he wouldn't go to battle without the leading lady of Israel. But God gave him victory anyway. That's not how he's remembered. He's remembered as a military hero who built beat Sisera. How about Jephthah? Jephthah, you, you never had a daddy like Jephthah. You all think that you had bad parents. Jephthah said, Lord, if you give me this, this victory, the next thing comes through my front door, I'll sacrifice. In comes skipping his daughter. But that's not how Hebrews remembers him. Hebrews remembers him as a man who conquered kingdoms in the name of the living God. And it goes on and on and on. It says their weaknesses were turned into strengths. The living God is able to take a man who is full of failure, full of weakness. And he doesn't just add one plus one plus one. When you begin to do righteous things, he will remember no more the wicked things that you did. That's what Ezekiel 18 said. Now, mind you, it's not a scale of justice. It's not, well, for every good thing I do, there was a bad thing, and they kind of balance out. No, you were born hopelessly condemned. You could never do enough to be saved. He simply allows for the promise to be born that you couldn't have, and allows to put to death the things that you birthed that shouldn't be there. Let's go to the next slide. We'll see if we can explain it some more. Is that okay? Are you all awake? Yes. Am I boring you yet? When we're looking at these defining deeds, we do need to see how is it that God counts them. Galatians 5, 6 says this way. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts. Say that with me. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You want to do something that counts in the heavens? It has to be born of the trust that you have in the living God and it has to be expressed in a loving way. The only thing that God will keep track of in the end, the only thing that there will be a legacy of for all eternity is what you did for Him in faith. What doesn't matter are all of the things that you birthed out of your fleshful frustrations trying to do what you thought was right. I don't mean that He doesn't see them. I don't mean that they won't cause you pain. Just because God said your son, your only son, didn't mean that there wasn't an Ishmael out there that for the next 4,000 years would try to wipe out the descendants of Isaac. But they have. Just because God said your son, your only son, did not mean that all consequences of those other things were gone. Or that they were not there. They are. God simply decided every mistake you've ever made Every wicked thing you've ever done, I'll credit that to me. I will take the penalty for it. And what is required of you is to now be led by my spirit and give me full control of your life. That's what salvation looks like, friends. Let's go back to Genesis 22. In Genesis 22, can you all see those words in the top right-hand side of your screen? In Hebrew, this is a Yahweh Yireh. Now, 
You will meet people that have been influenced by a corrupted translation that say Jehovah Jireh. And you'll forgive them for it. It's a very Christian thing to do. But God's name is not now. It never has been Jehovah. Doesn't matter how many of his witnesses run around and go to Kingdom Hall and bang on your door. They do not even know how to pronounce his name. And the translation that they have says on the front cover what it is. New World Translation. The spirit of the living God is speaking a message through Genesis 22. And you can see it in the second verse. Let us read it again. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac. God wants you to take that which was born of promise, that which is supernatural, that which he has given you and the only thing that you have of worth and the only thing that counts, whom you love. You know when the first time the word love appears in all of the Bible? It takes us 22 chapters to get there. This is the very first appearance of the word love in all of the Bible. How important do you think that is? The only thing, Abraham, that you have of any value after laboring and serving me to the age 100 years old. Actually, he's probably more like 116 or 17 at this point. I need you to take that. I'm going to show you something to do with it. By the way, I know that you love him and it's the only thing you have at work. Whom you love and go to the region of Moriah. Anybody know where Calvary would be some 2,000 years later? Moriah. Anybody know where the threshing floor of Aruna was purchased? Region of Moriah. The uh, Davidic worship, region of Moriah. The uh, Solomonic temple, region of Moriah. The first guy to ever find it was Abraham. And the way that he found it was he looks up in three days in the distance and it's there. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains. I will tell you about. What an incredible scripture. How long have you worked to get what you have? You ever heard somebody who's maybe done well for themselves? They said, man, what a beautiful house. You sure are lucky. I worked hard for this house, son. Y'all didn't have the same parents I have. <laughs> And the, the message was, you work hard enough, you too can have it. Because everything we have, we have because we work hard. You can't work hard enough to get anything of value in God's sight. This was something that he could only get by trusting the Lord. And after trusting and laboring for decades, he's being asked to risk it. What kind of trust would you have to have in the Lord to do that? If it took you 40 years to get one precious thing, and then that precious thing, you might have to lay down. What kind of trust in the Lord would you have to have? And yet Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith it's impossible to believe. It's impossible to please God. Anyone uh, who loves Him, wants to please Him, has to believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Sitting in the middle of this situation comes the test of all tests for Abraham. The Lord did it once. But I believe he'll do it again if I give it back to him. I've noticed in Christianity there is a tendency to rest on our laurels. We were saved. We did sell our house. We used to go to Africa. We used to do these things. And now... Now we don't have to do anything because we've proven ourselves. It's not true. 
It never has been true. In fact, that takes an Isaac and turns it into an Ishmael because it becomes your arm and your achievement. Listen to what Abraham learned here. It comes from Genesis 22:14. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. When did that happen? Abraham looks up in the distance. He sees a place in the region of Moriah. His son says, Dad, you know, I, I can't help but notice that there is fire here, there's wood here, there's a knife here. Where's the sacrifice? He's getting a little squeamish. He's seen this look in his daddy's eyes before. That crazy, reckless abandonment of all reasoning other than that the Lord is right, no matter what it means. And he binds his son on wood and is about to strike him with a knife. And he says, the Lord will provide. It was Abraham comforting his son. If the Lord gave me you, the Lord will give me whatever else I need. Hebrews goes so far as to say the reason he did it is he knew God could raise him from the dead. If you're trusting him, clinging to a promise, your promise can't ever really be dead. We serve the God who raises the dead. But if you're trusting in something that is an Ishmael, something that you birthed out of your frustration trying to accomplish something for God, it was dead when it was born. You just didn't know it. And no matter how much life, money, and energy you try to pour into it, it will always be dead. It will not even count in God's eyes. When he takes a heavenly census and a heavenly inventory, the way Paul says it is you will pass through the fire, but it will be burned up. Hay, wood, stubble, and straw. The only thing that counts is what is born of the Spirit inside. So well, how do I get that? This is why Abraham named the mountain. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. Wouldn't you think you would call it, the Lord has just provided? That's what I would call it. After all, after not sacrificing Isaac, I mean the knife was in the hand and the angel says, Stop! Abram, Abraham, Abraham, don't lay a hand on the boy. Now I know that you love me because you've not withheld from me your son, your one and only son. Then Abraham looks up and what does he see caught by his horns in the thicket? A ram. He sees the king of the sheep caught by his crown and the symbol of sin. And Abraham understood what Christ was. I don't have the ability to provide it myself. But if I will die to my desires, die to everything I thought was right, and follow you without question, you'll provide whatever I need. And he named the mountain Yahweh Yireh. Not the Lord just provided, the Lord will provide. Now Abram, A-B-R-A-M, means exalted father. Did he have the ability to have a son? Couldn't have one with Sarah, so he tried to have one with Hagar, and God wouldn't even count him. Changed his name to Abraham. It's a little upgrade. Got some ha in there. Say ha. 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 I love God laughs in the Bible. He says ha. Ha ha. He says it throughout the prophets. I don't really know what that means, to be honest with you, but apparently God is mocking people. <laughs> Not okay when we do it, it is okay when he does it. He's always right, just like this man is always right. And when he does this, he adds that ha to Abram. His name goes from exalted father to father of many nations. 
This is like a cruel joke. The guy that can only have a child, the one born by the promise who has to give it up, is going to give birth to many nations. The secret to adding and subtracting in the Bible is that the more you're willing to give up, the more he will give you. That is the secret to God's man. The more you will sacrifice for him, the more he will add to you. It will be your joy to keep bringing it back to his feet. And you will never, never, never outgive it. Now, those prosperity pimps on TV are trying to fleece the sheep. They're trying to steal from you. They're telling you, send me a thousand and God will send you back seven thousand. If it works that way, pick up the phone and ask them to send you the first thousand. That way they can be blessed sevenfold. This is not a money message. It is true with money, but I'm talking about your life. The further you go for God, the more He will bless in your life. And your life in the end will not be defined by that one moment after the Noah flood. It will not be defined by that one moment when you should have spoke up and you lied. It will not be defined by those things. It will be defined by the way you trusted Him and what was born in you. And your legacy becomes what God did through you. Not what a great person you were. It will be what God did through you. He'll take a man who can barely have children and raise him up to the exalted father of many nations because it depended upon his spirit. Y'all say Yahweh here, right? Yahweh We need the Lord to provide for us. Let this be a prophetic word for every man, woman, and child in this room. Lord, provide that opportunity for a promise that I can trust you in. Provide that opportunity for me to show my trust in you. Lord, protect me from my own inclination to create Ishmael. I don't want frustration in my life. I don't want works of the flesh in my life. I want only what you can count in my life. I'm going to ask you, can he count on you? You, personally, can he count on you? Are you defined by Isaac or are you defined by Ishmael? Is that up to you? And you get a choice how you want to be remembered by God. Y'all stand to your feet.